Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. It's towards the very end of your Bible. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far, go back a couple of books. Go past the book of Hebrews. 1 John chapter 1, we will be in verses 8 all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. The next two weeks, we're going to be uh, preaching just, I guess, this mini-series of New Year sermons. And uh, this particular sermon, as you see in your bulletin, is about New Year forgiveness. And this is a phenomenal text of God's inspired word where we might hear of that forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. If we say... We have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear. Eyes to see, tongues to taste that you are good. Help us to know the beauties of this forgiveness that we have in Christ. And no matter what might be in our minds as we review this previous year and as we get ready for this future year, help us to know that in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. And we ask this in his name. Amen. D.L. Moody visited a prison that was called the Tombs. And he went there to preach to the inmates. After he had finished preaching, Moody went to visit several of these men in their cells. And as he would talk with them, he would ask them a question. He would say, well, what brought you here? Again and again, he kept hearing them say things like this. Well, I don't deserve to be here. Or I was framed, or I was falsely accused, or I was given an unfair trial. Very few of the inmates would admit that they were guilty. But finally, Moody found a man with his face buried in his hands, weeping. And what's wrong, my friend, he inquired. The prisoner responded, my sins are more than I can bear. Relieved to find at least one man who would recognize his guilt and his need for forgiveness, D.L. Moody exclaimed to this man, Thank God for that. Moody then had the joy of pointing him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, a knowledge that released him from his shackles of sin. My friends, let me ask you some questions. Are you like the first set of prisoners who think that you've been wrongly accused by God? Who think that maybe you don't have much sin or sin at all? Or can you be like the last prisoner who was so overwhelmed by your sin that you think you can't have God's forgiveness? 
Those are typically the two extremes or the two ditches that we find ourselves in every day. We either underestimate how real and prevalent our sin is, or we're so overwhelmed by our sin that we think that we cannot have forgiveness. Where are you today? Do you believe that your sins can be forgiven? How can you be sure that your sins are really forgiven? That's one of the things that John is addressing in this letter to this congregation. They were wondering, can their sins really be taken care of? What's happened actually in this context is that these false teachers have infiltrated this church and they were trying to get the people to think that, well, you're not as bad as you think. And as long as you just kind of get your mind off the bad news, then you'll be fine. But John's going to present to us a different message. He's going to say, actually, if you want to know the good news, you need to hear the bad news. So, brothers and sisters, let me ask three questions. Have you confessed your sins? Have you confessed your salvation? And have you confessed your Savior? Look back at chapter 1, verse 8. Have you confessed your sins? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Once again, the false teachers, they had infiltrated this congregation and they were trying to take them away from what the gospel was actually saying. And here are two different ways in which they were promoting their false ideas. The first one is this. Look at verse 8. Clearly, there was the idea that, well, we don't have any sin presently. That could maybe have meant maybe you don't have a sinful nature or you don't do any sinful acts. Regardless, the idea would be that this false teaching was saying that we don't have any sin. Now, what does that look like for us today? We can see it functionally at work today. Even if we give lip service to say, yes, I am a sinner, but functionally it can look like this for us. We can just be denying our sin, blame shifting, watering down. We can have this victim only mindset where I'm not really the sinner. It's just what people have done to me. Or we fall into this age where we just psychologize everything and we just explain it away. We can also think that we have no sin or no sin in a certain area just because it's normal today. We think that we don't sin now because we're Christians, that maybe we've reached this Christian perfection. Or we simply just give lip service to the fact that we're sinners, but we don't take it seriously. Those are all ways in which we can functionally act like what these false teachers, we can believe what these false teachers were saying. Here's what happens when we believe that. John gives us two things. He says, if we say we have no sin, first, we deceive ourselves. It's interesting, this word for deceive obviously means to lead someone astray. It means someone who is an imposter. But there's a very interesting word picture here for how this word has been used in ancient literature. It's this picture of horses that would roam off the path. 
that would go astray. Or it was this word that was used as a, this word picture as a disease that wanders around from person to person. So in other words, you see this. When we deny the fact that we still have sin, even as Christians, we're not only roaming off the path of the gospel, but here's what we're also doing. We're spreading a cancer among fellow Christians. Now, was one of the implications of what John is saying. Here's a second implication of what happens when we believe we don't have any sin. He says the truth is not in us. You see, we might even say we believe the truth. But if we're functionally living life as if we don't have any sin, then we need to ask ourselves the question, are we really believing the gospel? We need to see this. False teaching is not something to mess with. False teaching, no matter how innocent it might seem, no matter how nice the person who is promoting that false teaching might see, you, you might not even be like, look at them and say, you're a false teacher. They might be your mom. They might be your coworker, And they're the nicest person ever. But brothers and sisters, for the sake of your salvation, you need to know what's true and you need to know what is not true. That doesn't mean you beat people up. You learn how to graciously, patiently interact with it. But you must stand on the truth. No one who is a false teacher comes into the church. They'll open up those doors and say, hey, my name's Bob. I'm sorry if your name's Bob. It's just the first name came to mind. Hey, my name's Bob. I am a false teacher. Can I be a member here? No one would do that. Rather, false teaching is subtle. It can talk a lot about Jesus. It can talk about things of the gospel. But then all of a sudden there's a different emphasis. Or you might say a lot of truth, but couched in those statements are some very false statements. John sees his pastoral duty here. He must inform them what is true and what is not true. So the first false teaching they were saying is that currently, presently, we don't have any sin. Here was the second false teaching they were bringing in. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. Now, this is one where it's saying not just in the present moment, but he's saying anything in my past. I've never sinned. I've never had a sinful past. John is saying that this is also a false teaching that has clearly crept into the background. But what does this functionally look like in our lives today? Sometimes what we can do is this. We can excuse our sinful responses that we people have really sinned against us. Hear, hear me on that. People have really sinned against us. But we sin in response to that. But here's what we'll do. We will excuse that sin because we will just say, but that's what so-and-so did to us, and that was just my natural reaction. When we do that, when we pretend like we've never sinned, John is saying, once again, there are two implications for this. First off, we make God a liar. It's a bold statement. It's interesting in this uh, in this verse, in the original language, liar is the word that is emphasized. It's almost like John speaking like Yoda. Liar you make him to be. It's putting the emphasis on the fact of like how audacious of an idea that is, is that you are making God a liar. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We have sinned. John is saying we make God a liar, but also we do this. It shows that the word isn't in us. Now, this word for word is the same, using word a lot, it's the same word that John uses back in his gospel. In John chapter 1, where he says that the word, the logos, was made flesh. Here's what John is saying. Brothers and sisters, if you really believe that you have never sinned, then you have not been born again. John is saying that if you really believe that you have never sinned, then the word is not in you. One of the things that the gospel does for us is that it awakens us to our sin. That is often why this happens. How do you know, one of the ways, how do you know what you're maturing in the Christian life? Sin stings more. You might actually, as the Christian is, as they're being sanctified, you're walking more and more in holiness. But as you get those spiritual taste buds, those spiritual nerves, as it were, sin stings more and more. That's why you often feel like you're really not getting much better or that... Ah, can this sin really be forgiven? In the Christian life, we see what our sin is. So let's look at this. What happens in a church when it acts like it is without sin? Oftentimes what will happen among the people is that instead of there being gospel encouragement, there's actually a lot of discouragement. Because you begin to think that, well, maybe I'm the only one. Well, maybe I'm the only one who's done this. And all these other people are fine. They've never done what I've done. This can also happen too. A church that acts like it is without sin is a church that's very just self-focused rather than Christ-focused. Because if, if you don't have any sin, you don't need Christ. You're just focused on yourself and your strategies and how you look good. A church that acts like it's without sin is a church that acts like, once again, that has no need of Jesus and no need of the Holy Spirit's work. A church that acts like it is without sin is a church that thinks that the gospel is not as great as our own personal story. Because it's all about me and my life and my story, because that's all that matters. I don't really need to study God's story and how I find my place in his story. But a church that acts like it's without sin, inevitably, there's division and rivalry and finger pointing. But brothers and sisters, we always forget and whenever you point a finger towards someone else, you always have three pointing back at you. We cannot act like we have no sin. So what does it mean to confess our sins? That's what John says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess, what does that mean? It means to agree with God that he is right about your life. That God is right in his evaluation and his assessment of your life. That when God says you have sinned, you say, yes, Lord, that is sin. What we did earlier in the order of worship, when we are confessing our sins, we are saying about ourselves what God is saying about us. That's what confession is. There's an incredible Old Testament picture of this. In Leviticus chapter 16, we see the sacrificial system. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring two different goats to, uh, into the tabernacle. One of the goats would be for a sacrifice, 
where its blood would be poured on uh, the altar. But the other goat was what's called a scapegoat. Now, what's this? Let me read to you from Leviticus 16. Listen to this. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron, watch this. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over that goat all the sins of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their iniquities. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. That goat, the scapegoat, that goat shall bear all all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness which is where it would die. You see what's happening. When in the Old Testament when Aaron or the high priest would confess sins it would be as if the sins and in a real true way the sins would somehow be transferred and sent away. Who is the ultimate fulfillment of the scapegoat my friends? Jesus Christ. When we confess our sins, Jesus is saying, treat me as the scapegoat. Transfer your sins to me and I will take all of them into the wilderness where you will never have to deal with them anymore. Amen? Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, And no longer shall each one of you teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. But listen to this. He goes on to say, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, when you confess your sins to Jesus Christ, God is telling you in his word, I will remember them no more. Praise God. Living by faith is treating Jesus as the scapegoat and he wants to be treated that way. He wants to help you. He wants you to confess your sins to him. He does not want you to do this. He does not want you to continue to beat yourself up. And once you beat yourself up enough, then you can feel good about, you know, following Jesus after that. No, my friends, he's inviting you now to confess your sins and he takes them away. I love what John MacArthur says in this one interview. God doesn't remember your sins. Why should you? There's no sense for things that God doesn't remember. So why should you? That's one of the hardest things to believe in the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus really does take away our sins. The Christian is not someone who has no sin. The Christian is someone who brings their sins to Christ because Christ deals with them. That's what John's saying. John is saying, no, you're not defined by your sin. But you are acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of Christ's mercy, so you bring them to him. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul's saying there is this. You have sins that you still presently, for the Christian still, you still have to murder your sin. But you do that by bringing them to Christ. Christian, Listen to this. The Christian is not someone who only confesses their sin. The Christian is someone who confesses that even their good deeds are wicked. Did you hear that? Christians are not someone who just 
who just says that, well, I have sins. The Christian is someone who says, even my good deeds are tainted with sin. One day, two men were kneeling side by side at the communion rail of an English church. One of them was a former convict who had been in prison and his sentence was now completed. The other right beside him was the judge who had sentenced him to prison. After the service, the minister asked the judge, did you recognize the man who was kneeling beside you? Yes, I did, replied the judge. That was a miracle of grace. You mean, said the priest, you mean, or the, uh, the uh, minister, you mean that a man you sentenced to prison should be kneeling beside you? No, not at all, said the judge. The miracle is that I should be kneeling beside him. You see, that man clearly knew he was a sinner in need of a savior. But I was brought up in a religious home, lived a decent life, and served my community. It is more difficult for someone such as me to recognize his need for a savior. I am the miracle of grace. Brothers and sisters, your good deeds are more dangerous to you than your own sins. Because it is so easy for you to turn those good deeds into your functional righteousness and stay away from Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches us to renounce all sins and all of our good deeds and to solely depend on Jesus Christ for salvation. Amen? That's what the gospel does. See, when a church knows it's sin, they'll confess their sins. They'll be more humble. They'll be more appropriately vulnerable with people in the church. There will actually be a culture of a safe place. Actually be a church that fights against sin. There will be a church where there will be appropriate, gracious church discipline. There will be a church that never leaves the gospel and never emphasizes something above the gospel. So brothers and sisters, have you confessed your sins? If you confess your sins, brothers and sisters, you can be sure that God has forgiven them. But have you confessed your salvation? Look at verse 9 again. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, when we confess our sins, here's where John says, here is who God is and what God does. You see, when we confess our sins, he says this, God is faithful and righteous. You see those two words, right? Or faithful and just. When it says that God is faithful, The original readers, when they heard this, they would have thought about all the promises of God in the Old Testament. That God is faithful to his promises to forgive us our sins. My wife, as I was kind of running through this with her this morning, she was saying how one thing that's key here is the promise in Genesis 3.15. That right after the fall, God promised that he would send someone to make things right. He would send someone who would crush Satan, who would take care of our sins. My friends, if God promised that, he will fulfill it. If God promises that he will forgive our iniquity and he will remember our sins no more, he will fulfill that. The moment that God does not fulfill this promise is the moment he is not God. It's a pretty bold statement. See, actually, we could very much reverse this sentence. Listen to this. We could say this. If we confess our sins, 
God would be unfaithful and unjust if he did not forgive us our sins and if he did not cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If he left out just a little bit of it and said, I can do this part, but not this, God would not be God. This is an amazing promise of the gospel. Amen. He doesn't leave anything out. He doesn't. You might think that uh, I don't know if he can deal with this. My friends, God can deal with everything. That's the whole reason why Jesus came. He's faithful and he's righteous. He will fulfill his promises, but he will also do what is in accordance with the law. He will forgive us our sins. It means to legally separate from us. What's so interesting in the original language is this, is that the word for us is in the emphasis. I'm not going to do the Yoda voice again, but what this verse is saying is this, is that the forgiveness of God for you is very personal. He knows what you have done and he forgives that. He knows what you have done and he cleanses that for you. It's not just this blanket forgiveness of like, oh, I don't really know what they've done, but I'll forgive all their sins. It's personal for you. That's what you have in Jesus Christ. It says he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not some unrighteousness, but all of it. You see, love, what well, this one pastor says that it's a pastor who had a moral failure several years ago. And even though there would be a process where he would have to go through church discipline and many other hurts and pains, but we see something amazing here. He had an affair. And he went to where he was working. He was working at the seminary. And he went to the seminary president and he confessed his affair. And brothers and sisters, yes, there would be a process. Yes, there would be things he would have to go through. But when he confessed his sins, he received the assurance of pardon. And here's what he said in response to that. To this day, I don't know that I have ever felt more empty and more full at the same time. Bring your sins to Jesus Christ. Because God is faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This brings incredible assurance of salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You see where John addresses them. He says, my little children. This would be a term of endearment. It's the same term that Jesus would use in John chapter 13, verse 33, when he is preparing his disciples for his own departure. And he calls them my little children. It's not a, it's not a demeaning way of like, <laughs> you little children. <laughs> I'm the adult here. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of family. John is writing to this congregation. He's saying, here's how much I care for you. Now notice this. John's not beating them up. Now he's got to be firm. And he's got to expose false teaching. But he is also being very pastoral here. You see, we need to see this once again. Sometimes we think with our, in our day of the tone police and even if you say something true, but if it's not in the right tone, then, you know, oh my gosh, it's like the worst possible thing in the world. John is speaking the truth. And being pastoral means you must speak the truth and you must expose the lies. But you're also leaning into them by God's grace. One of the most pastoral things that can happen 
is that John would expose the false teaching. He says this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I think this is so interesting. The false teachers were saying this, water down your sin. It's not that bad. Just act like you've never sinned before or just redefine it or whatever it is. John is actually saying this. It's actually as you go through the process of confessing your sins to Jesus Christ that you grow in holiness. Right? It's not when you ignore it. It's actually when you confess it. See, this is the reason why we have confession of sin every single week in corporate worship. It is vitally part of your sanctification. It is vitally part of your growth in grace. The marks of a church that is not maturing, here's how we can see some of those marks. It would be a church where there is little confession, or at least when there is confession, it lacks heart. It's a church, or a church that is not maturing would be a church that says, well, I know I have some sins, but I really know other people would write right here in this room who need to confess these sins. It's a church that can say this, well, my sin is not that bad, or this is just the way that I am, or... This is just my personality. The signs of a church that is not maturing is a church that thinks also this, that you must confess enough in order to be forgiven. That I must must confess constantly, always, for the rest of my life, and then I can earn forgiveness rather than knowing there's forgiveness in Christ, and then you confess. The church that gives people to-do lists in order to acquire forgiveness is a church that is not maturing. A church... That they might take sin seriously, but it doesn't point people to Christ is not a maturing church. A church that puts on self-righteous masks. Um, a church that loves to go on sin hunts with other people. Or a church that doesn't expect each other to sin. These are all signs of a church that is not maturing. But what about marks of a church that is maturing? For one, it does this. It starts with the leaders. The elders and deacons do not do this for lip service, but it starts with the session and the diaconate that they are men who confess their sins. They don't water it down. And as that happens with the leadership, Lord willing, it spreads out to the congregation. And the marks of a maturing church is also a church where people confess their sins to appropriate people. They might need to confess their sins because they sinned against someone or they might need to come confess their sins to an elder or one of the pastors because they need to know how to deal with them. A maturing church is a church that does not just confess sins, but is a church that drinks deeply of the righteousness of Jesus. I think one thing we might want to think about is this. We should confess our sins and we should confess that God has forgiven us. But we also need to make sure we confess that Jesus Christ is righteous for us. Amen? A church that is maturing is a church that is more ready to forgive than to hold grudges. It's a church that would actually celebrate confession because confession is the first mark of repentance. A mark of a maturing church is a church that doesn't leave an offender even if church discipline has to ensue. But they stay with 
the sinner. And they walk them through the gospel. They talk about real sin. They call it for what it is. And there might be various different things that might have to happen. But they move this person towards the grace in Christ. And most importantly, the mark of a maturing church is this. It is a church that depends on the sufficiency of God's word rather than anything else. It doesn't psychologize things away. There might be things we can learn. There might be other things that might be helpful. But God's word is sufficient. God's word does the work. Amen? If you've confessed your salvation, you can be sure that your sins are taken care of. Thirdly, have you confessed your Savior? Here's what John gets into at the end of chapter, I mean, uh, end of uh, verse 1 and in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When he says that we have an advocate, it's this word that he has used elsewhere also actually for the Holy Spirit. It's this word that means a helper in court. In other words, kind of a lawyer. In that day and age, your, your lawyer, your, your advocate, your helper would be often your best friend who has a good reputation. Someone who is known as being a stand-up person. I love what John is saying here because when he describes who the advocate is, he doesn't just say Jesus. He says Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the best advocate because he is the most righteous. One of my friends back in Jackson, Mississippi, I remember asking him about this term, and he, he's, a, he's a lawyer, and so I was asking him just about just what, what do you think this word picture is. And he said this, that when you're in court and when you have a lawyer representing you, nothing good ever comes from you speaking personally for yourself. You need to let the lawyer do it. My friends, one of the ways in which you grow in the faith is to trust Jesus and take him at his words. He is your advocate. Even when you really mess up so bad that you would have to, as it were, go into court. Jesus is the advocate for you in those moments. When you think you have really blown it, that you have really messed up, that your sin, you finally sinned, that big sin that you thought you'd never do. Jesus is the advocate for his people right then and there. That's what this term means. It's interesting that in Jewish thought, our good works were often thought to function as the advocate. The gospel teaches us the exact opposite. The gospel teaches us that we never depend on our good works to advocate for us. But rather we trust Christ and his good works to advocate for us. Amen? He's an advocate to the Father. In other words, locationally he is in that relationship to the Father, the Father who will judge all things through Jesus Christ, if He is the judge of all. But if you have an advocate to the judge, and if the judge is going to give you no condemnation, then you can never fall in condemnation. Jesus is such an advocate for you that you will never experience the wrath of God because Jesus did. That's actually what... John gets into next. He doesn't just say that Jesus is an advocate. He says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What in the world does this mean? Because I know we use this word all the time in just our common vernacular, right? Propitiation means this. It means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. 
Jesus on the cross, he did not go there just merely as an example. Look how much he loved his people and that he did. But something happened on that cross. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 or Psalm 7 verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels anger every day. Jerry Bridges says this, God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and it's and is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. God hates sin more than anyone else could ever hate sin. God hates sin. So how do we get that problem taken care of? Because we are sinners. What Jesus does on the cross is that out of the Father's love from all eternity past, the Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for us, for His people. On the cross, God's anger was exhausted on Jesus Christ so that you would never fall under that condemnation again. That's amazing. My friends, some of you need to be reminded of this. Some of you beat yourselves up because you're failing to trust that God is not. Because in Jesus Christ, God is not sitting there having his wrath over you again. You need to trust in the mercy and grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The emphasis here in this verse is that it is him, he, who is the propitiation for our sins. I love Jerry Bridges again. He follows up. He says, during those awful hours on the cross, when Jesus hung there, the cup of God's wrath was completely turned upside down on him. Christ exhausted the cup of God's wrath. For all who trust in him, there is nothing more in that cup. It is empty. It's amazing. That is why John is telling these people, look, you can come to Jesus Christ with all of your sin and you confess it to him because he's your advocate and he's your propitiation. Amen? That's amazing. We don't just need to confess our sins. We need to confess the righteousness that we have in Christ. Now, John, at the end of this, he gives us this last little phrase. He says, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. What in the world is John talking about here? Well, it, it helps to know what, how John uses the term world in his other literature. World actually has two sense of what John means it. It means, you know, the world back then for Jewish audience was divided up into Jews and everyone else, which would be called Gentiles. So the Jews and the world, that's one sense of it. So John in one sense is saying, look, the salvation of Jesus Christ is not just for Jews. It is for any ethnicity. That's why the gospel breaks down those barriers. But it also means this. John will also use the term world for the, as it were, the system of sin. Or the things that lead people astray. So what John is also saying is this. Is that there's no sin that you've been a part of that can disqualify you from the grace of God in Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that literally everyone who's ever been in existence is going to be saved. Or that Jesus literally died absolutely for everyone. Jesus died for his people. But he is such a sufficient sacrifice for his people that anyone can come to him and find grace and mercy. 
It's amazing. If John is doing anything here, he is showing us that anybody can be sure that in Jesus Christ their sins are forgiven. Amen? It's an amazing message for a new year. There's one psychiatrist who said this, I could dismiss half of my patients if I could just look them in the eye and give them the assurance that they really are forgiven. My friends, God, through his word, is looking you in the eyes and he's telling you that if you have come to Jesus Christ, you really have the assurance of salvation in him. But here's what you need to do. You need to believe that. Believe it. Not believe it and then it will be true, but believe it because it is true. And then some of you are not a believer. Some of you do not believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. What you need to do is believe that this is true. Don't go out and try to work your way up to it. Believe now. Today is the day of salvation and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would just imprint this text upon our hearts. Know that we would know that in Christ there is enough mercy for us and that there is more mercy in Him than there is sin in us. That we would see and look at Him who is our propitiation, our advocate, and also He who is the scapegoat. That we would know that He covers us. But you must do the work. So we're asking that in the preaching and the singing and in the sacraments that we would know that the gospel is true for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.